Open your Bible this morning to Revelation chapter 17, where we pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. Last Lord's Day, we, we walked through the, the seven bold judgments of God. And again, as there was nothing new there. Uh, there was nothing unearthed that we had not previously seen, and that's because of the cyclical nature of the book of Revelation. The, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls are really, they're describing the exact same thing. They're des- describing God's wrath on a world that lives in rebellion to him, that keeps him at arm's length, that denies him. And there's a progression through the seals and then the trumpets and then the bowls. And we talked about the difference between a trumpet and bowl while it's looking at the exact same time period and describing the same events, though the difference is in intensity. The difference between a trumpet and a bowl is a trumpet is to warn you. A bowl, once it's poured out, it's too late. And so we've been looking at God's judgment upon a world that lives in rebellion to him. Well, as we move to chapter 17, we're entering into the final section of the book of Revelation. But it's connected to everything that's come before it. In fact, we might say that Revelation chapter 17 is taking trumpet and bowl 6 and 7, which which is leading toward final judgment, and it's kind of pulling back the veil and saying, let's examine this a little bit more. Let's examine the players. Let's examine the characters uh, going in the world around us um, and how God it is that God through Christ is going to defeat these enemies. And so in chapter 17, the great enemy known as Babylon is unmasked. So he's pulling back the veil, says, I've already laid out for you. Here's what's happening. Now let me, let me go into greater detail on that. One of the enemies that will be defeated in trumpet six and Trumpet 7, and in bowl 6 and bowl 7 is Babylon. And let me unveil, unmask her for you so you, church, might have a better understanding. You might be better equipped against her onslaught until judgment comes. So the title of the message this morning is simply Babylon Unmasked. Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose, sex, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and it is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction." And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over the power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. 
and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, again, we read these chapters, and, and if we allow ourselves to just get sucked into it, we, we can kind of feel overwhelmed. We can feel like, my goodness, I didn't understand a word of that. I didn't understand what in the world is he talking about. So, again, as we've done all throughout the book of Revelation, my goal is not to identify every, every element that's put on display in chapter 17. In fact, I can't. I don't know. Nobody knows. But there is a larger story, there is a larger picture that's on display here in chapter 17, that though we may not be able to identify all the specifics of these things that John is describing for us, we can feel the weight and the gravity of the message he's trying to communicate about these things. And here we're dealing with Babylon. Now Babylon... It's a, a name we've come upon over and over in the book of Revelation. In fact, uh, one commentator says that there are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and in 44 of those, Babylon is mentioned. Not just here in chapter 17. We, we've seen it all throughout the book of Revelation. So obviously, Babylon is important in God's purposes. It, it's, it's, a, it's a player in, God's, uh, in this apocalyptic vision that John sees. But here's what we've got to understand. At the time that John wrote this in about the year A.D. 95, you know where Babylon was? It was a pile of rubble. Babylon had not been around since many, many centuries, since a couple centuries prior to the writing of this. There are no inhabitants of Babylon, and John is writing here. So obviously, he's using Babylon symbolically. There is no geographic place in John's day you can point to the map and say, Babylon, right here, this is where it's going to happen. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. So the Lord must have some divine purpose in referring to Babylon, which hasn't existed for some time, and it's this. All throughout the book of Revelation, we've been particularly since the, uh, uh, since the trumpet judgments. We had an interlude where we know the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were introduced to an unholy trumpet. Do you remember? The great dragon, right? Going back to around chapter 12. And, and the allies, the, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, right? Chapter 13. And how that formed an unholy trinity. In contrast to the holy trinity, again, Satan is just simply mocking and mimicking God. Why? In order to turn hearts away from the one true God. And the holy God, all throughout the book of Revelation, is building a city. A new Jerusalem. We're going to see that more clearly even as we continue on. Well, likewise, parallel, the unholy trinity is building their own city. And its name is Babylon. It's a symbolic city. These are not literal places. These are symbolic cities, symbolic kingdoms where the Holy Trinity rules and where the unholy Trinity rules and where their people live and reside. Symbolically, their hearts are surrendered to these deity and the false deity. And so, in order to better expose the work of the unholy trinity and the city that they've been building all ever since the, uh, the ascension of Jesus Christ, right? The time period we're looking at in the book of Revelation is not some fast forward into future we don't know when. It is the time period from Christ's ascension until he returns. That whole gamut is being affected and is being communicated to here in the book of Revelation. And Babylon is a player in this time between the two advents of Christ. And here in chapter 17, John introduces us to a mystery woman. In verse 5, we're told on her forehead was, a, was written a name of mystery. 
Now, we talked about this in our prayer meeting this morning, that in our day, mystery tends to mean a puzzle that needs to be solved. It's a mystery. That's not what it means in biblical days. In John's understanding of the book of, of, of mystery, mystery has to do with a, a God's open secret. It has to do with something that would be hidden if God himself didn't reveal it to us. So it's not something hidden that we've got to really put our thinking caps on and let's, let's figure this out. Mystery is something that God's told us. But had he not done it, we wouldn't understand. We wouldn't know. But God has revealed it to us. And one of the things he's revealed to us is the mystery of this woman here in chapter 17. Now, with regard to this woman, John, when he saw her in verse 6, the end of verse 6, says, I marveled greatly. He saw this, this woman that God exposed and brought to him in this vision. Again, a symbolic woman, a mystery woman. John himself says, I marveled when I saw her. To which the beast replies, verse, or excuse me, the angel said to him, why do you marvel? I will tell you the, uh, the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. What John is doing here is, is telling us that the Holy Spirit is equipping us, church, whether the seven churches of Asia Minor or because, again, seven is representative of fullness, every church in every age, Covenant Life Church. The Holy Spirit wants us to know who this woman is because she is an enemy of our king. She hates our king. She's doing everything to pull people away from the king, and the Holy Spirit wants us to know that we may understand and that we may resist her appropriately. So, since the Holy Spirit is exposing this woman, there are no less than four things I want us to take note of about this woman. Our focus this morning is upon the woman. She's described in verse 1, the first thing I want us to think about is her identity. Her identity. She's described in verse 1 as the great prostitute. You may be using a Bible version, it's called, it calls her the great whore. It's not pulling any punches. It wants us, there's a vivid imagery, a picture there that's being painted that we need to feel, that we need to understand. She's the, the great prostitute. And then in verse 5, she's referred to as the mother of prostitutes, which means she's kind of like the queen bee, if you will. The queen bee of prostitutes. We read in verse 4, about how she's dressed in this vision. Flashy clothing. And if you fit the imagery of a prostitute in your head, you're going to see the parallel. This, this great prostitute, verse 4, was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. A flashy appearance. She, she lives in an extravagant lifestyle. And the Greek word for prostitute is pornea from which we get our word pornography. This is her. She's pornographic. It's a very negative description of this woman. Well, who is she? What is she exactly? If she's symbolic, what is she? Well, she's also presented not only as a prostitute, but also simultaneously as a city. These two descriptions are going on at the same time. She is a prostitute and she is a city, and she's, the city is named, verse 5, Babylon the Great. Both at the same time, on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, she's identified as Babylon, which we've already said has been long gone geographically. So what... What is, John, what, is, what is God revealing to us about this woman by giving her the name Babylon? Well, what do we know about Babylon? It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Babylon was that ancient kingdom that took Israel into captivity. Characteristic of Babylon back in the Old Testament, they were an immoral and pagan nation, guilty of all manner of wickedness and evil and oppression and idolatry. They were a pagan nation. They did not worship the one true God, Israel's God. 
They worship pagan gods. And throughout ancient literature, the name Babylon came to be used not, sim- not just for a nation that existed in the Old Testament, but as a description of any earthly city or nation whose rule is opposed to Jesus Christ. So any nation that isn't Babylon may be referred to as Babylon simply because they live like Babylonians. They live pagan. They live wickedly. They live in opposition to the one true God. That was was Babylon's renown. That was their reputation. And anyone who lived likewise would be given the nickname they were Babylon. So Babylon in Revelation refers to not just that Old Testament nation, it refers to any nation, in any time period, in any place. But not just a nation. Stay with me here. Babylonian, what characterized Babylon? The ungodliness. They didn't worship the one true God. Not only does Babylon in Revelation refer to any nation that doesn't worship the one true God, any social organization. Planned Parenthood, I'll throw that in there, that that does not live under the lordship and the reign of Almighty God is Babylon. Any political movement. Communism would be characterized as Babylon. Uh, the, The pornographic film industry. Babylon. False religions of our day. Islam that denies Jesus Christ as Lord. Some of the cults that we see. Babylon. Hold on to your seats. Worldliness that infiltrates the church of Jesus Christ is Babylon. A heart that enters into God's house but is not worshiping the one true God is Babylon. Babylon could be in this room with us. Babylon cannot be limited to one individual or one nation or one institution or one city. You can point to any city on the globe, any nation on the globe. And you can't say that's Babylon or that's Babylon. That's what Revelation is talking about. That right there is Babylon. No. It is is without boundary. Babylon is found wherever and whenever there is satanically inspired deception and idolatry. Babylon is present. Babylon is symbolic of all worldly opposition to Jesus Christ. In ancient times, Sodom and Gomorrah would be described as Babylon. Egypt, Nineveh, Rome, all of those, that's Babylon, characteristic of Babylon. More recently, Nazi Germany, China, in our day today, North Korea, Babylon. Do you you understand why? We're not saying geographically they are descendants of the, we're saying spiritually. Spiritually, their hearts are as corrupt and idolatrous as the Babylonians were in their day. So, As one author puts it, Babylon represents the total culture of the world apart from God. That's just kind of my umbrella over the whole thing. It's the total culture of the world apart from God. And we know that this description about Babylon is mostly about the religion because the prostitute is said to be sexually immoral. Right? We see that a couple of times in the text. We can't read that with 21st century eyes. Now, I'm not saying that it doesn't involve sexual immorality as we understand it today, but biblically, in this day, sexual immorality was a religious thing. Sexual immorality, we saw this previously in in Revelation. It's a metaphorical way of describing religious apostasy, religious idolatry. Think back to the Old Testament. How did God describe Israel when they betrayed him? They were what kind of people? Adulterous. Right? They were fornicators. Not because physically they had done that. Now, they may have. I'm not saying it it doesn't include that. But in Scripture, sexual immorality, particularly here, is talking about a spiritual dimension. 
uh, you, you've betrayed your king. You've drifted away from your first love, and you've pursued another lover, another god, another idol. And the idea here of this prostitute being sexual immorality is not intended to drive us to some just pornographic thought. It's intended to understand this woman has replaced the one true God with a false God, with an idol. And now she's tempting, she is tempting others, her drunkenness, metaphorical, to likewise pursue her and her God. Babylon, the city that the unholy trinity is building in contrast to the holy trinity building of the new Jerusalem. Do you see? He's just simply, God is pulling back the veil and say, church, I want you to understand what's happening in your lives. I want you to happen, understand what's happening in your churches. I want you to understand what's happening in the world in which you live. There are two diametrically opposed kingdoms that are being built simultaneously. And you need to know because this prostitute who has dressed herself up so, who, oh, by the way, one aspect of the unholy trinity looks like a lamb, right? Chapter 13, will woo you into her and you will think all along you're doing it in the name of Jesus. So who is the identity of Babylon, the prostitute of this world? It's symbolic of worldliness. Worldliness. Going all the way back, Babylon was first mentioned in Genesis 10, although it took a little bit shorter form, Babel. What was happening there when Nimrod builds that tower to God? What's he trying to do? I can get to God on my own. Worldliness. I don't need God's help. I don't need to depend upon another. We are superior. We can do this. We will build a temple. We will get to God on our own. It's worldliness. That's the, the seed of Babylon there at Babel. So we need to understand Babylon is something that's always been with us. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's a consistent and continuing feature in human history. So oftentimes in the text, you may remember, I even stumbled over the wording a couple times in the reading. It was, it is, it is to come. Speaking about the beast that the, the prostitute rides upon, it's eternal. Let me back out of that word. Not eternal. It's always been in the context of time. It is now, and it will be. God wants his church to understand and to know this. That's the woman here, Babylon, the great prostitute, worldliness. The second thing I think the Holy Spirit wants us to see about this woman here is her double strategy. There's a twofold strategy that the prostitute uses to woo in lovers. We're given a description. Well, well, the main description is, is worldliness. The seductiveness of her own trying to woo people into her way of thinking. And this is a universal phenomenon. We look at it in verse 1. It says, the woman Babylon sits upon many waters. So this woman, this prostitute, who we've, we've kind of been identifying, she sits upon many waters. And it's from the waters that she allures. It's from the waters there that she's enticing. What are those waters? Skip down to verse 15. The Holy Spirit tells us. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So the woman is sitting upon People from every tongue, tribe, nation, every generation, every age. The message here, the picture being painted is there is no generation, there is no nation, there is no class of society that is safe from the clutches of this prostitute, of worldliness. Her clientele are the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots. 
No human philosophy, no system of government is untainted by this woman. She sits upon many waters. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. There is nowhere that her influence doesn't reach. Nowhere is safe. That's the message here. Church, there is nowhere to flee from the presence of the prostitute and her influence. Which means this. Babylon can get into Covenant Life Church. Babylon can get into your homes, into your families, into your marriages, into your children. Babylon, the prostitute, can get into your heart. You see, the mystery woman here on display, worldliness, is not just out there among a certain group of people that we don't particularly care for. I mean, if there's hate in your heart, you know, we assign, you know, they're the bad one. She's not just out there among a certain people. She's not just in a particular location, meaning she's not just uh, in the bars or in the clubs or in the pagan nations. This woman loves to come into Christ's own church and to intoxicate Christ's people, to turn them away. Isn't that the work of the unholy trinity we've seen all throughout the book of Revelation? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Worldliness. There is nowhere you can go and hide to protect yourself. That was kind of the, when I was growing up. Worldliness was defined as if you smoked, you're worldly. If you drink, you're worldly. If you, if you gamble, if you go to Tunica, you're worldly. If you listen to Certain types of music, you're worldly. If you go to certain types of movies, you're worldly. And so you had well-intended people who, I guess as best they could, lived in a bubble and thought that they were safe from worldliness? Uh-uh. If that worked, which was going on in the particularly 70s, 80s, early 90s, you would see a much stronger church today than we see. fact of the matter is, worldliness is always so much more than just a particular place or a particular influence. It's deeper than that. Worldliness is a spirit of seduction that leads me to live for myself rather than for God. Worldliness is a spirit of seduction that leads me to live for myself rather than for God. It leads me to think too highly of myself. It leads me, kind of like at the Tower of Babel, to think, I can do this, even in the name of religion. I can do this on my own. I can accomplish this. It forces me to think too highly of myself, admiring myself, admiring other people, but not God, not Christ, not being enchanted by Him, being enchanted by myself or other people. The strategy of the prostitute, of Babylon, of worldliness is to help us to think wrong thoughts of God and wrong thoughts of ourselves. Worldliness wants us to make God small and us big. And man, she's, she's winning. And there is a trap here. If she can, in even the slightest way, influence us to have inadequate views of God, lower view of God than God reveals of himself, a wrong view of God will lead to a wrong view of self. As God gets smaller, who, gets, who has to get bigger? Me. And if I get bigger, what happens to my understanding of sin? Well, if I'm big, sin is small. And what does that do with my understanding of my need for Christ? If sin is small, how big of a Christ do I need? Not very big at all. And the gospel can be just something I do, just I'll pray a prayer, just kind of put a band-aid over. I have a problem, but Christ will fix it. And then I can go about my own life doing You see how it distorts everything. Worldliness comes in, lowers our view of God, increases our view of man, weakens our view of sin, and so we don't need much of a Christ at all. We don't need to be infatuated by Christ. We don't need to be enamored by him. We just need what he did upon the cross. So when I die, my sins will be forgiven. But what has the Holy Trinity 
said the new Jerusalem is. It's all about Christ. It's all about Ephesians. Paul, Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that all that God has ordained before the foundation of the world has been to the exaltation of Christ to make much of him. Do you see how this kingdom of Babylon, this, this kingdom that the unholy trinity is diametrically opposed? And this prostitute with all her flashiness, with all adorning her face with the makeup, is wooing people away from the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Her strategy, the strategy of worldliness, is to seduce us into thinking her thoughts about God, her thoughts about us, not God's thoughts about God. Do you see? And she's done so well that today, even when you confront somebody who professes to be a Christian with their inadequate views of God, man, they go off on you. There are people who truly believe their view of God, which is so weak and inadequate, and their small view of Christ is sufficient to save. Worldliness has influenced and totally confused our thinking. That's her first strategy. There is a second strategy. I'm not going to spend as much time on it. The second strategy is persecution. If worldliness doesn't work, she will use persecution. We see this in verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs. Persecution. That's just another way. Fear. We see this in our day today. Not, not necessarily in this nation. In this nation, it's more subtle. Persecution like this is more blatant in other countries around the world where, where Christians truly are losing their lives. But the point is this. One way to force people to drift away from Jesus is if you can put fear in their lives that they're going to die, they're going to lose their physical lives, don't you go near Jesus. You go near Jesus, and to follow him, you're going to lose your life. That's another strategy she has here. Worldliness is one. Persecution is another form here. But the primary one, particularly for us in this nation at this period of time, is the seduction of worldliness. The great burden of the church today, of our hearts, of our homes, must be worldliness. There's a sense in which... Now, this woman, let me clarify something here. This woman cannot destroy the Church of Jesus Christ, the capital C, Church of Jesus Christ. That is bought by Christ, it is secured, no one. But the little C church, this church that is made up of both wheat and tares, right? We're familiar with this. We've talked about it in Revelation, that when the church assembles little church in different houses, we would love to believe everyone in the room is a Christian. I would love to believe that about this room. But if we're paying attention to the Bible, I cannot believe everyone in this room is Christian. The wheat grow among the tares. The influence of worldliness pulls us away from Jesus Christ. And that's what the church today must be the great burden, to understand the influence of worldliness, to be awakened to it, so that we can flee to the king, so that we can flee back to Christ where true salvation is found. So we've identified the woman, Babylon, the great prostitute, it's worldliness. The double strategy she has, worldliness, the influence, the seductive nature, and persecution. There's a third thing here that the Holy Spirit wants us to see, the support of this woman. John says in verse 3, verse 3, and he carried me away in the Spirit, this is so important, into a wilderness. Think about how this woman is portraying herself. Flashy clothing, beautiful makeup, God is pulling back the veil so that John can see. John, I want you to see what this woman really is. Because what you see is the facade. You see is, is the fake clothing, the fake makeup. She's trying to make herself attractive. Let me show you what she really is. And to get there, let me show you. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There ain't nothing flashy in a wilderness. It's desert land. It's death. 
And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven horns and ten, seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. Do you see what just got exposed? Oh, she presents herself flashy. She presents herself, she's beautiful. She's alluring, she's enticing. People, people want this woman. But it's only on the surface. It's a facade. What lies behind this woman, John says, is a wilderness. Behind the dazzling lights, behind the, the, the wonder of it all, behind the excitement, is desolation, a wilderness. God shows John the truth about this woman. Coming to Life Church, do we see the truth of this woman who is very much present with us today? And all this week, and even this morning, she's alluring us, luring us, enticing us away from Christ. Now, we're here, we're fighting. Christ is all we're saying with our lips. But she's luring us away. Are we seeing what John is showing us here about worldliness? It is not what it makes itself appear to be. Ralph Venning, who was a, a Puritan pastor, wrote a, a difficult book a long time ago called The Sinfulness of Sin. And in that book, he describes in his day the, the theatrical plays that went on in his day. And he talked about how, you know, as, as part of it, men would dress up as women. They would put costumes on them. And, and, and uh, what, without makeup was a man. With makeup would be, appear to be a beautiful woman. And Venning goes on to say, sin is like that. Sin makes itself up for the sage, it, stage. It dresses itself up. But God here exposes it for what it is. That's what John is doing for us now. He's exposing this woman for what she is. God is taking John behind the curtain to show that for everything this woman promises, all the joy, all the fulfillment, all the happiness, all the hope, is really place of desolation. She dwells in a wilderness. And listen, I was wrestled with this yesterday. I can bring this to your attention. And, and, and in your mind, wow, I, I see that. I see, that's, that's, that's powerful. But for that to grip us where it needs to grip us, only the Holy Spirit can do that work in our hearts this morning that we would learn what is on display right here, because we're going to walk right out the door. And even if, you know, we've got it in our head, she, it's just a wilderness. She's going to lure us, to trap us, as soon as we walk out these doors. Only the Holy Spirit of God can help us to, to see the dull grays and the, the deadliness of this woman. She's going to portray herself in brilliant colors. Only the Spirit of God can help us to see it's just a mirage. They're soap bubbles. They're there for a minute. You pop them, and they're gone. We've said all along this unholy trinity is mimicking the holy trinity. It's a fake, false beauty. Where's true beauty found? Somebody tell me, please, God, get it right. Where's true beauty found? In one person. It's in Christ. He alone is where true beauty is found. This woman's arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and pearls and jewels, but she's holding a cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And she's holding this cup out, saying, listen, it looks enticing, it looks alluring. But John says, be aware, it's deadly. She wants you to drink from her cup. And meanwhile, the cup will not satisfy your thirst. Every one of us in this room know that. Because we have fallen prey to worldliness. We've drank from this cup. We've got our hands on what she promised. And if we're honest with ourselves, we sit here this morning, we're fighting, but man, we're not where we had hoped we would have been. It didn't satisfy us the way that it promised. She holds out this cup, and she will continue to do so this week as we walk out these doors, drink from this cup. Meanwhile, meanwhile, 
How different is Christ? Who holds out a cup to us and says, whosoever drinks will what? Never thirst again. Do you see the contrast? Do you see what's happening here? Between these two cities, this woman sitting on a scarlet-colored beast, promising all these empty promises, and then you have Christ on the throne. Drink of me. You'll never thirst again. What John is exposing here is that this woman, Babylon the prostitute, has the backing of hell has the backing of the great dragon and those allies, right? The beast of the land and the beast of the water. She's financed, she's protected by, she's supported by the devil himself. The devil's using the prostitute. Is that not what you do with a prostitute? You use a prostitute. If you flirt with the devil's mystery woman, worldliness, you are living in Babylon. That's what James says. You cannot. Friendship with the world and is enmity with God. You, you can't have both. You can't sit here this morning and toe the line in Babylon and have one foot in the New Jerusalem. Well, that brings us to the final thing here, the frailty of this woman. The frailty of this woman. She seems powerful, she seems influential, and she is, but look at verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Babylon unmasked. Who she is, her strategy, but also here, her frailty. She's just a pawn. She will be destroyed. And isn't that, again, a prostitute is never loved. A prostitute is used. She's only used for what she can give to the one who pursues her. What begins as infatuation, it begins as attraction, worldliness, it ends in destruction. This woman who appeared to be so beautiful, so powerful, so influential, who held out a cup that we just knew we drink from that cup, it's going to fill all the emptiness that's in me. It's going to satisfy me in ways that nothing can. Be warned, she's actually frail and despised and will be destroyed. And when you give yourself to her, so will you be. I titled the message again, Babylon Unmasked. Because what appears to be so attractive, so alluring, so enticing, so magnetically drawn to, she's impressive. She's influential. There's a reason why we fall prey to her temptations. And every one of us in this room has. But here she's being uncovered, unmasked. She's revealed to be the despicable, destitute, deplorable, wilderness wandering prostitute that she is and she will be destroyed and for you and I who do we live for do we live for the great prostitute worldliness or do we live for the lamb the spotless lamb on his throne who guarantees victory over us we may be tempted to go to a prostitute for a husband-wife-like experience. I've not been there, but I've heard enough testimonies. I want to clarify that. But the testimony is it doesn't satisfy. 
It doesn't satisfy. You cannot purchase with money what can only come through a personal relationship with a wife or with a husband. Likewise, you cannot find the joy and the happiness that your soul was made for and is seeking through buying it, anything that the world has to sell. It can only come through a true relationship with the all in all, with the one who is beautiful, with the one who is soul satisfying, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he can give you what your heart needs and wants. Now I want to close this morning just with having exposed, we're not done with Babylon yet. We're going to come back to chapter 18, there's more, so I'm kind of leaving it at, we've just unmasked her. There's more to come. But for you and I this morning, knowing we're walking out these doors and the great prostitute worldliness is still alive and well, what are we going to do this week? Thomas Chalmers, writing in the 18th century, was really one of the most remarkable men of his time. He was a mathematician, he was a theologian, he was a scientist, really a brilliant, brilliant man, an economist even. But Chalmers wrote his most famous sermon and the expulsive power of a new affection, the expulsive power of a new affection. And in that sermon, he expounded an insight of permanent importance to you and I this morning. That worldliness, love of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the the flesh, the pride of life, worldliness can be driven out of the soul only by one thing, a new affection for something greater, for God, for Christ. The only way, even this morning in prayer meeting, I heard a couple people pray about, Lord, worldliness being taken out of our soul. Amen. We need to understand worldliness is is in our hearts, and it needs to be expelled. Lord, protect our church from worldliness. Well, how? It's not by like I was told growing up, you don't go to this place this week, you don't go to that place. Now, I hope you don't go to some of those places. It's not helpful. But the root issue is what we've got to deal with. We must find a new affection for something greater. We must find a lover that's more beautiful, that's more satisfying, that's more fulfilling than anything the great prostitute can offer. And that love for that one must be renewed constantly, constantly daily in our lives. If we lose, to use the language of the seven churches, our first love, we will find ourselves treading into worldliness. And that's exactly what happened to the church that left its first love in Laodicea. Worldliness. So, we must be aware that the way to overcome this kind of worldliness is by setting our affections once again ablaze on Jesus Christ. Nothing else will satisfy. In that sermon that Chalmers wrote about, he unveiled certain things. Here's things people try to do to try to overcome worldliness. They don't work, Chalmers says. Let me just list some of those for you just to save us all the heartache of trying these this week. Sometimes we make this mistake of substituting other things for the loveliness of Christ. This is what Chalmers says. Activity and learning. Sometimes we try to fight worldliness by becoming active in the church. If we can get some kind of position in the church or some kind of standing in the church or some kind of reputation in the church, we feel like we're growing spiritually. Meanwhile, we're not. That's that's pretty eye-opening. A second thing, when we become active evangelistically, we use this to try to drive out worldliness. If we can just become more active evangelistically, we feel like we're becoming more spiritual. Evangelism doesn't make you more spiritual, Chalmers says. We may try to, be, to fight worldliness by becoming more active socially, in politics, in social campaigning. None of that makes you spiritually grow. We measure our spiritual vitality in other ways, by our growing in knowledge. As I learn theology, read theology books, I feel like, man, I'm really growing. Don't let the fact that you're growing be the indicator of your affection for Jesus Christ. Just because you know more things about him doesn't mean you love him anymore. No position, influence, or involvement, Chalmers says, can expel love for the world from our hearts. Let me say that again. No position, no influence, no involvement, 
no activity can expel love for the world from our hearts. Indeed, those things may be a very expression of it. What is he saying there? You can do religious activity and you've done it all for you. Remember the the unholy trinity, the tactic? Make God smaller, us bigger. Sin smaller, don't need much of a salvation. And religion today is full of people who do religious things and, and they put on great airs. And it's not genuine. There's no real heart affection for Jesus. And Chalmers says it may be a very expression of worldliness. It's all about puffing yourself up or puffing up your organization or puffing up your church. Look what we do. Chalmers says, and I close with this, it is all too possible to have the form of genuine godliness, but not its power. Only a new love is adequate to expel the old one. Only love for Christ, with all that it implies, can squeeze out the love for the world. Only those who long for Jesus Christ will be delivered from being in love with this world. And then Chalmers closes with this. How can we recover that new affection for Jesus Christ? Well, What caused your love for Jesus in the first place? It was the amazing grace that this one that you had sinned against by mercy and grace had set his affections upon you and loved you when you were still his enemy and sent his son to die on the cross. That was what created that first love. So Chalmers says, why in the world would you leave that? (laughs) Why would you go pursue anything else? If that's what inflamed your love for for God, for Christ, for his beauty, for his majesty, and that's not still amazing to your soul, worldliness has set in. Go back to the cross. Go back to who God is. Go back to who you are. Go back to right-thinking God's thoughts about who he is, about who you are, about what sin is, about how great a salvation was necessary, and it will inflame that heart to Christ. He is all in all. And nothing else can bring what he brings.